Bring it. Uh, hi everyone. Hey, what's Hello. going on? <laughs> I'm like pausing for everyone to say hi now because <laughs> <laughs> the last one everyone was like talking over each other. Um, <laughs> hi and welcome to the second episode of the Liquid Courage podcast. My name's Laura and I'm here with Daniel, Troy, and Jeffers. And I'm really excited for our topic today because we're going to be talking about wine lists. Wine lists are a window into how the sommelier who writes them thinks and feels about wine. You know, kind of coming from a cooking background, a wine list is very similar to writing a menu or recipes in the sense that it's a very intimate process. So I wanted to have a conversation just about wine lists in general and get everyone's perspectives on them about both physical lists and contents of lists. I don't think we talk about them too often. I've never curated a list by myself before, so I've got a very different perspective than Jeffers and, and Troy and, and Daniel do. So any initial thoughts or comments or anything like that? No, great to be back, though. I can't wait to dive into it. Great. So we're going to start off. I had everyone before the show write out a list of their top five wine list pet peeves. So I want to start with Daniel. Daniel, oh. if you want to... <laughs> <laughs> if you want to read your your list of of your yeah. top five, and then we'll uh, berate you. Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, in no particular order, I just came up with these. When by the glass selection is mixed in with the bottle selection, as far as there's not a standalone page with by the glass options, so you have to thumb through. It's kind of just a pain in the ass to me. When there are spacing issues on a on a program and everything is sort of clumped together, uh, when the program is filled with I, I wrote down high production brands, I guess you leave that to your own imagination. <laughs> when the this is uh, very specific, but uh, when the binding of a wine program is busted and the pages don't turn easily. Oh, it's the worst. It is the wow, worst. That is very specific. Yeah. 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 <laughs> when you, when you deal with those lists, they're terrible. <laughs> yeah, it's the worst, especially when you're using them to sell. Anyways, uh, when the list names a producer but doesn't name a cuvee, that also, I mean, it doesn't really irritate me too much. I kind of have fun trying to guess which cuvee it is. But yeah, those would be my top five. I love that. I think that last one, Certainly peeves me. I didn't really think about it. But when you're like, I wonder which wine they have. So yeah. not too long ago, I had I was out and I had, uh, sorry, it's escaping me, the Patagonian uh, Pinot Noir is producer. It, oh, is it a... Like a Chakra, right? Chakra. So yeah, they have several different wines now. And it just said Bodega Chakra. And I was like, which one is it? And I kind of inferred by the price point which one it was. And then when they brought it out, it was not that. And so then you have that awkward moment of being like, yeah, I don't want to pay that for that. Oh, I'm looking at a list right now. It, it's a Pinot Noir. It just says Domain Serene. And uh, I don't know which one it is, but it's $225. So. Can you imagine making that mistake with a bottle of DRC? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, but... <laughs> Yeah, that's that, yeah. just laziness, I think. Well, or or it's whoever's running the program isn't super, I don't know. Like, I remember when I was getting my bearings running a program, I'm sure I made similar mistakes, but. Does it ever bother you if wine lists get too specific? Like, how specific are we talking? Oh, now I can't think of an example. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it would irritate me. I'm sure it'd be like, wow, this is, you know, too much. The wine list gets yeah. a little too lippy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I get, well, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I, I've worked with a wine program um, that had a two-sentence description under every single bottle on the entire menu. So I guess I'd say that's too specific. And it's not even specific. It's just too much information. It's useless and makes the wine program way longer than it needs to be. Yeah. So the best one, everyone seems to agree, is when the there's a producer but no cuvee. 
yeah, I, I think that that's really solid. Yeah. I mean, that's that's lack of is it ignorance or is it naivety? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think some people rely on their distributor to give them information, and I think distributors, not all distributors, but I think some distributors can kind of give you, they're like used car salesmen in a way, they'll give you the information that they want you to have, and in that way, you know, they could sell you, hey, talk about such and such a winery, and then sell you the most entry-level wine that they have, talking up, talking it up as if it were their Grand Cuvée. Here's your digital text seat. Just copy and paste. Yeah. All right, Troy. Hit us with your list. Oh, boy. All right. So the first one for me, um, like Daniel said, no particular order. But what I wrote down initially was the lack of diversity. Um, diversity to me is, is probably the most important thing in any wine list, whether it's something where you only serve, you know, by the glass and there's 10 selections or, you know, a, a 5,000 skew wine list. Um, one of the things that drives me crazy on by the glass is where you have four different Chardonnays from California and there's a $2 price difference between all four of them. To me, that would be an example of lack of diversity. It's like, well, why pick one or the other? You know, what's that doing on the menu? Also, I think Burgundy is one of these regions, whether it's, you know, Rouge or Blanc, that Burgundy styles, um, can be diverse, but there's a lot of repetitive wines, especially with Chardonnay. I notice. You know, there's a lot of oxidative styles that are a little bit more rich and opulent. And I'm not talking about village. I'm talking about producers um, or a lot of reductive ones. And some of these burgundy lists will be a little bit repetitive and redundant as far as styles. So I think it's important to be cognizant of those. Uh, maybe do a little homework on them before you put them on the list to, to create diversity. Like, why would I get this wine over that wine? And, uh, and hopefully you have an answer for that. Uh, another one is uh, is accuracy. Um, wines that don't have um, maybe it's more consistency, but accuracy and consistency kind of go hand in hand to me. Like Daniel was saying, he doesn't like glasses that are spread throughout the entire list. He'd rather have them put. I would imagine Daniel. I don't think you specify this, but on the first page or in the front of the wine list, where you can kind of see all of them together. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, and I totally agree with that. I mean, there should be some fluidity to the list, whether you start with sparkling, move on to white, and then red, and then with each subcategory, lighter to fuller. Um, I think that consistency and accuracy is something that if you get away from that, the list becomes a little bit more muddied. The other thing that I don't like, this is more structural. I'm not a huge fan of tablets. I think uh, nostalgia is always going to win. Uh, I've hit on this with you guys before, but screw caps, they're going to remain here, but they're not going to be the predominant uh, vehicle for, for bottling wine. And also the, this new trend towards paper bottles. We all think recycling is great. However, the glass bottle I don't think will ever go away, even though it's, it's more expensive to ship. It's better for the environment for paper bottles or less expensive and, and better, to, uh, better for the environment. But again, this might be kind of my get off the lawn moment. Um, <laughs> the other one, uh, you guys know my passion for young Nebbiolo. I think it's, it's overpriced. It's underripe cranberry. I mean, if you were to take a cranberry off a tree and eat it, that's what I think you're getting with young Nebbiolo for only $40 a bottle. If you're getting a great deal, um, you know, I've, I've joked around, this is the Ellen DeGeneres of wine on paper. It looks great, but it's really going to abuse you <laughs> once you taste it. Quick question, uh, Troy. Are you under the impression that cranberries grow on trees? Uh, for this podcast, I am. <laughs> okay. Just, oh my God. just checking. Also, I find that fresh cranberries are a, quite a treat. This is one uh, of those. Hear what damn. I mean, not what I say. John's well, fired. We'll... Jeffrey's just taking everyone down today. Damn. What are you putting your coffee this morning? <laughs> a little cranberry. Um, yeah, must be it. Uh, and then the, uh, the last one is wineless that have point scores. Um, I think it's ultimately the laziest way to advertise your wine list. I kind of look at it almost as, as like the, uh, you know, the JD Power Awards on those Chevy commercials <laughs> that replay over and over and over. It's like you get to a point where it's laughable, right? I mean, you just don't trust it anymore. It's like, is your product any good or is this JD Power Award even real? Does it exist? If you look on YouTube, there's a whole series of videos that constantly make fun of these videos because it's like JD Power Award for best steering wheel. It's like, what? How is that a thing? 
like it does your car actually like work so it's it's one of these things where it's a, it's a very lazy way to you know promote your product is there a certain point system that you don't like yeah bright points <laughs> <laughs> i mean really any of them I, i'm the sommelier is i know it's a cliche but you know point scores at the end of the day are just a lazy way to talk about wine if, yeah. if somebody here let's put it this way if somebody really wants to know about points and they're coming into a restaurant and they're concerned about how many points their wine has they're probably not going into a restaurant that has points listed on their menu right I don't know if that makes sense, but that type of personality, I don't imagine them going to restaurant XYZ because of the point system they have listed next to the bottles. So I want to kind of go back to what you said about diversity. So um, are, are you saying that you'd rather have two, let's say, Chiantis, for example, um, two Oak Chardonnays, you'd rather have fewer of each category, but have more categories instead of having a large selection of wines that generally taste the same? Yeah, it's exactly what I'm saying. Um, if you're, let, let's take the two Chianti examples, right? If you're going to have two Chiantis for sake of the diversity question, mm -hmm. my hope is that you would have, if they're priced at the same price, let's say a dollar or two apart, one would be oaked and one would be unoaked. Right. Or if you were to have two that are unoaked, have one that's, $10, $12, whatever it might be. And then the other be a more premium selection and maybe have a little bit of age to it. I imagine it would. That would be, you know, $18, $20. And then when a guest asks you, what's the difference between these two? Why should I pay that premium? Or why should I pick one over the other if they're the same price? You actually have an answer instead of sh shrugging your shoulders and be like, well, they're kind of the same. Right. Right. Yeah. It's not doing anything for your wine list. You're not moving wine that way. You're literally just giving somebody a quarter and saying, flip it, because I don't know. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. Yeah. All right, Jeffers. Uh, so first I'll say um, is that your wine list is unbalanced from a pricing perspective. And what that means is that they're, all the wines on the list are either priced too low, priced too high, or what I call a donut, where there's a lot of low-priced wines and a lot of high-priced wines, but not a lot of selections in kind of the meat of the of the list. I don't know how you guys feel, but I feel like when I go out to eat, when a lot of people that I know go out to eat, you want to have the total amount that you spend on wine to be roughly equal to the total amount that you spend on food. And if you can't do that, I feel frustrated. So I recently went to a restaurant where the most expensive bottle other than prisoner at $82 was like a $50 bottle of wine. And they had a, a really nice menu. You could put together, you know, a multi-course selection of, of food and you could have a really nice night out, but you're grasping to find wines that kind of pair with that. And then the same thing is, you know, I think we all know a French restaurant that you walk in and they have wines by the glass and then the next bottle starts at about $250. I don't think that's really appropriate. Uh, I think you should, if you want people to drink wine, you know, you should have something that makes people feel comfortable that they want to spend money on at a price appropriate point. Uh, next, I think you guys talked about this in general, but like misclassified wines, especially if the list is large, I don't want, you know, I may tend to just go and drink what I feel like tonight. Like, hey, I'm looking for a cool climate red. And so I'll just go to the regions that I know might be of interest to me that night. Um, and later I see a bottle go out and I was like, oh, I didn't even know you guys had that bottle. And I go back to the list and it's because they had a Loire wine classified in the Rhone section. I wasn't looking in the Rhone section, so I wasn't going to find this wine, but I was like, okay. hey, I could have gone for some Sancerre Rouge tonight, but they put that somewhere else. Um, mm. next, you've, really, uh, you've run into that? Uh, absolutely. I wow. ran into it a couple of weeks ago where somebody had um Chinon in the Rhone section. So, uh, so next is Santa Margarita Pinot Grigio is your only old world wine. Um, <laughs> and there's a restaurant not too far from my house that that is actually the case. Um, it's very sad because they have like a very decent food program. Uh, back when there was football, I used to love 
go in there and having a bottle of wine and watch football all day. But chicken wings know. and Santa Margarita. Oh, God. Uh, I wasn't for the Santa Margarita, but well, I'll f- just fess up since they didn't have any old world wine. I was drinking St. Clair Sauvignon Blanc. So that tells you. Uh, yes, I have gone out to restaurants and paid for New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. Jeffers, what would it take for you to purchase Santa Margarita at a restaurant? Uh, I think I'd have to get a free filet. I was going to say if they didn't have beer and if they didn't have any other wine. <laughs> I, I, maybe I, I would have to, and this is going to sound really insensitive, but I'd have to have COVID and lose my sense of taste. Oh my gosh. Jeez, dude. Oh my that God. If you want to. No, uh, I'm not staying in. Okay, I'm totally fine with it. Uh, <laughs> next, short wine list only, wasting on a duplicate. So Troy alluded to this, but there's a restaurant that I've gone to recently that has Juggernaut and Requiem are two of their three Cabernets. I don't know if you guys mm. know these wines, but they are, other than region, the taste profile and price point is identical. So I don't think there's any reason to to waste two spots on a really short list for that. Same thing with like two entry-level Proseccos. Why would you do that in a short list? And right. then last, and I don't think this is for everybody, but for people that work in the industry, it's a peeve of mine when I go in and I realize that this list is brought to you by Southern Glaciers Wine and Spirits. <laughs> <laughs> or, and I don't mean to pick on Southern, but just it's, you know, a distributor early offered you a, you know, 40 case deal and said, I'm going to put together your entire list. You're welcome. As if well, they're it, doing you a favor. It just shows Southern is very proficient at what they do. There's nothing wrong with that. You just got to be a, uh, a more astute and attentive buyer. Yes. I'm not blaming any one particular distributor right. for this because I think any distributor would do that if they had the opportunity. I think it's just, it's lazy on the part of the, the buyer and the owner and the program to just say, yeah, I, I've got what I need. I don't need anything else. Totally. Yeah, I think, I think if, depending on the, the knowledge level of whoever's running the restaurant or program, I mean, I could see why wine might be a, a gaping hole in their knowledge. So maybe they feel more comfortable and trust one of their distributors. Yeah. But lazy or it might be the best option available, but then you might ask why they're running a restaurant. Yeah, I I really like what you said, Jeffers, about the donut pricing. Um, I I I run into that a lot, where there's nothing that's kind of in that that sweet spot, um, money wise. And of course, what a sweet spot is money wise for everyone is different. But like, let's say I'm going out to a nice dinner, I'd say I, I'm looking for something depending on the wine in the range of maybe like sixty to a hundred bucks if I'm like really going out. And I think for a lot of people you know, at least where we are, that's kind of the the sweet spot, you know? Yeah. And I think that happens for a couple of reasons, but I think one of the most common reasons is that becomes the default after building a big, broad list and then uh, selling out of a lot of those sweet spot wines and realizing that they have all this money sunk in these high-end wines that nobody's ever buying. So they feel reticent about, restocking the list i've seen a lot of people say well i'm not going to restock until i sell out of this stuff that doesn't sell i'm like that doesn't make any sense you how are you going to sell out of stuff that doesn't sell (laughs) could wait till the end of time for that to happen (laughs) yeah definitely all right i guess i'll go this is great because there there are very few redundancies i think between all of ours so that's cool this first one I don't know if you guys are going to disagree with this one or or not, but I don't like when there are two separate wine lists. And what I mean is there's a kind of a short, concise list that everyone gets, and then you have to ask for the actual wine list. Oh, say it ain't so, Bruno. Totally. I hate that. <laughs> I hate that so, so much. Number two. Tell us. Okay, never mind. I want you, I want to... <laughs> I can feel your passion, and I just want you to elaborate. This but one I, really I grinds like, her gears. Yeah, I could tell. I like it is, it, well, is yours in. Go ahead. go ahead. No, I was gonna say is yours in like uh, order as far as this is like your number one pet peeve. No, no, no. Just like everyone uh, else, these are these are out of order. I guess I don't like that 
personally because I want to see the full selection. And also, right. it kind of feels a little skeevy to me, um, where it's like these are obviously wines that you're pushing, right? Where if you're reprinting it like you are on the back of the menu every night, right? These are wines that you want to move or get rid of. I totally get having to do that. Just for me personally, it's like show me everything you have so I can make an actual informed decision about what I'm going to be drinking tonight because if I buy some sort of you know low-end wine because it's the only one I'm interested in on the the short list and then I find out you've got something I really like on the larger one I'm going to be pissed off oh my gosh this is Laura's Hansel and Gretel like you know moment here it's like the, the little list is here here's a little treat and then the big list is in the oven why don't you go check it out <laughs> Let me ask you a question just to clarify, because they're... Oh my god, I get one in, and I've already pissed off all three of you. <laughs> no, I'm, yeah, not, I'm not bad at all. I, I just have a no, not at question. All. Is, can this be solved through culture? And that is that you have a short, digestible, approachable list, and then, you know, as your hostess or host takes you to the table, they say, if at any time you'd like to see you know, our deep bottle list or our seller list, please let us know. Or they walk to the table with it and offer it to you in as an adjunct. I'm thinking of a, a well-known restaurant in our city that used to have this as a policy where they had like a 50 selection, easily digestible list tucked in the menu. And then they also had something that was the size of a, a large encyclopedia that they would drop on the table with a thud if you wanted that right yeah i've i've been in restaurants like that before from from a server perspective when i was at a restaurant that had that um that order of operations and and service standard you know that thing was like a thesaurus it, it weighed a ton and nobody really wanted to pick it up um i mean but that's that's a problem in itself and and maybe it's kind of uh, what Jeffers was talking about with the whole donut thing, where maybe having two different wine lists is a symptom of that, right? Or well, bu building on that, so in, in this restaurant that I was just speaking of, I had an issue where the wines on the smaller list would also be on the larger list, right? So you're having... Right, so just give me the whole thing. Right, so just give you the whole thing. That, and the problem that I ran into more times than one was if you had one mis mistake on one wine list and it wasn't on the other... I had a bottle ordered off one list and it was labeled differently on another. So you're setting yourself up to bring out the wrong bottle, even though it's listed correctly in one of the lists. Yeah. I, I also think as a Psalm, it would be really frustrating too, because it just takes one server to not offer up that list that that's a potential sale I missed out on, on a big bottle, right? Because a, a guest potentially doesn't know that, it, it exists. Like I can think of a restaurant that's very close to where I live where I I have to consistently ask for the reserve list. It's not presented to me and it's always, I mean, they never bring right. it up, right? But I know that they have it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so. you're walking into, I mean, if everyone is Laura in your restaurant and then they re they buy a bottle and realize they could have had a better bottle and you, you have the opportunity to piss off a lot of people. Yeah, I, I think so. And if you have people there who are educated right. about wine, then it's not a problem if somebody's given a list that maybe is a little bit more complicated right. because there's somebody there who's being paid to guide them through that, sure. right? So I, it just, in a lot of ways, yeah. I don't like it. Number two, <laughs> <laughs> categorizing wines by arbitrary characteristics. I already know how some of you <laughs> feel about this. I Categorizing wines by words like interesting, or fun, or exciting, or bold, right? I bold is a little less arbitrary, but the as terms like that are very subjective. I think it's very lazy, and I think it's a way for people to categorize wines that they they don't care about as much. So, like, where do you put Gorgstaminer, or where do you put Albarino? Mm. There's no comments or thoughts on that Sorry, one. Sorry, you cut out there. No. Oh, did I? Where no, did I go? No, I mean, Troy, yeah, okay. I guess you're sitting this one out. Okay. Uh, I, I, no, I'm just joking. Uh, with the interesting <laughs> one, I think, I, yeah, I t definitely agree with you in terms of it's probably where Albarino and Gewürztraminer will land, and maybe it's because they don't sell well. 
but what if someone actually thought they were like interesting or what if that's like a great way to palette a wine to a guest and to make them i don't know i feel like a lot of emotional it's about eliciting emotion in a in a sales pitch and if if you're conveying to a guest that the wine's interesting maybe they're more likely to buy it. i mean it's just uh, well, let me ask yeah. you this then, Daniel, is saying that those wines are interesting, saying that the other wines that you're offering aren't? I don't think so. Yeah, I, I, I see what you mean. I, I agree with you more than I don't, but I, I think there's an opportunity there. Okay. And I think those, I think those exist as catch-all, uh, you know, areas on a wine program, just so you have somewhere to, to put those wines. So I agree that it's lazy, but I, yeah, I don't know if there's necessarily a better option. I'm sure there is. I if, just can't think of it. I mean, if you want to think of a different word to, to fill in the blank there, but I mean, the, the philosophical question that you're asking is how do you replace that category? I don't really find the need to replace it personally. I, I've never really had an issue with it. I think, you know, I, I know a lot of people do, but, you know, to put Albarino under whites of Spain and you have one wine, I think that's more silly than putting a, a catch-all for, for kind of the junk drawer, which sometimes can be fun. You know, sometimes you find a $20 bill in the junk drawer. Sometimes <laughs> there's, there's, there's wines that, you know, might be underpriced um, where you can get good value on. That's usually where those wines kind of exist and where my eyes kind of gravitate when I go into restaurants. Yeah, I guess maybe I just don't like the idea of putting any wine in a junk drawer. Right. I, I mean, Ooh, is that ego talking or is that I don't, it, it's, it's, I don't think it's ego talking. I'm just saying like every wine is unique and, and good, you know, quotation marks in, it, in its own way. I, it sometimes it frustrates me that lesser known varietals, at least by American consumers are just kind of thrown into this category because there's just less importance right. put on them. So do you find on these lists, just a follow up question, a majority of these wines come from the old world? Yes. Or let's say it's like something that's like an esoteric blend from Oregon or California or something like that. Or like, let's say I've got, you know, something from like the Finger Lakes where I don't have a a big enough, you know, selection of wines from those regions to kind of give it its own space. Those are the wines that I often see in those things. And I would say that putting wines in a category like that it alienates them. You're pointing out, okay, these are strange, right? And most people, at least where I've been working, won't even look twice at those because they they're they're being highlighted as being strange or weird or cheap or what. So have what's you. the solution? Um, I mean, I don't know what an easy solution is, but <laughs> I guess I don't know if I have a solution other than you should categorize by region and then within region you know categorize by white and red or or just categorize by um i guess if you categorize varietally then that would start yeah, to look really it, well piece, to, to, to build on this i mean the list that you're speaking of isn't a list that is, you know, at 11 Madison Park, right? They have enough wines to justify a categorical region. You're talking about a list that might have, let, let's say, 20 to 50 wines. And when you have that list, you are going to have some of those, those junk drawer wines. And to start adding a category for singular wines, all of a sudden your, your wine list looks muddied. It looks cluttered. It, it almost looks more disorganized than it does organized, where it shows that your OCD is almost showing through when you have eight different categories for white with one wine under each. So I think it's a little bit easier on the eyes and easier to read when it's in this category like that. Do we just need a new name? I mean, I guess that's a good point. Would I? No, I mean, do we need a new name other than interesting reds or chunks? Oh, I I mean, you... Honestly, I don't really think that the name matters a whole lot. I mean, maybe it does. You you, you could put that's, that's, that's you like could put fun whites. You could put old world whites if you if you knew they were all from the old that's, world. I don't really think that part matters as much as grouping them together. 
I actually, I'm, I'm going to sure. argue the opposite. I, I think what bothers me most about that is the word. So I, I guess I would rather say something like um, sommelier Perfect. selected, right? Or, yeah, or something like that. that. Yeah. I think it's the alienation of, of certain wines just because you don't know what to do with them. It's like, okay, well, then if you don't know what to do with them, then maybe you shouldn't have put them on the list because maybe they don't fit with everything that you're doing. Oh, my gosh. If, if we so. ever open up a restaurant together... We need to have uh, like a red and a white <laughs> category of this. And then Laura can put sommelier selections for whites and I'll put junk drawer reds and we'll see which one sells more. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, we, we could have uh, just a mystery mystery bottle and we can there bring out go. whatever we want. Can we have two different cool. Fermentinos at the exact same price oh, point? Oh, gosh, Sheffers. <laughs> oh, my God. You're not going to be in this business <laughs> venture. It's a Vermentino only restaurant. <laughs> It's it's Vermentino Skin Contact Pinot Gris. Jeffers Restaurant, I could just see it. Your donuts make me go nuts. <laughs> and a margarita Pinot Grigio. Okay, what am I on? Number four. Um, this is kind of similar to something that uh, Troy and Jeffers touched on, but mine's for sparkling wine. When you only have yellow label Veuve Clicquot as your like your sparkling by the glass option, that and like a Prosecco, I'm I'm immediately turned off. There are so many amazing value-driven champagnes, uh, California sparkling wines, Spanish sparkling wines that are so much better and, again, so much more value-driven for the consumer. You know, if I've got young Nebbiolo on my list, I can give you Voclico. Uh, I just... I, I will fight you. The only reason Psalms have it on the list is because they know right. that it just has brand recognition. It's an easy sell. I think it's always overpriced. Definitely not the best sparkling wine mm. I've ever had in my life. It's not the best champagne I've ever had in my life. There are so many better cavas or, again, California sparkling wines that I think are, are, are better. Yeah. So I guess really the heart of that one is just having wines on your list that have brand recognition just so you can make a quick buck on them because you know somebody's going to buy your prisoner or you know somebody's going to buy the yellow label or you know somebody's going to buy the Kim Crawford and they're just the margins on them are just like crazy because you're charging out the ass because everyone's confused about all the other selections. Yeah, yeah. but counterpoint isn't that okay? And the reason I'm not going to not being flippant. I mean, yeah, from a from from a business standpoint it's totally okay. I mean, I just I guess I do a little bit of an eye roll when I see these things at ridiculous price points, right? Because I know exactly what's going on and you're just playing off the naivety of some of your consumers, right? It's like you're getting a bad deal on this wine. In any restaurant or any bar, you're going to have part of your list thinking pragmatically. Part of your list is going to be for people who want to come in, not think about it and order it. I mean, the reason people have Bud is not because it's a challenging or exciting and beer. It's because people come in and say, I want a Bud. Right? right. And, and same thing with Prisoner. It depends on where you are. I'd rather have, I'd rather have a beer that maybe flavor profile-wise is comparable to Bud, but maybe a little bit nicer. Right? And then if somebody comes in and asks for a Bud, you know, I would like to say, okay, I don't have Bud, but I do have yeah, this. Yeah, that's... That is some, that's a trap that so many people fall into. And I, I love you for <laughs> saying that. But on the other hand, if somebody came in and asked for Budweiser, are you going to expend the energy telling that person how you have a great beer that's not Budweiser? Right. Why not just give that person Budweiser and save your right. energy and your space on your list to offer somebody who comes in and asks for a Guinness a slightly more challenging stout? So we can get into this because I was working at a restaurant that was an American themed restaurant and we would get some clientele that wanted to be adventurous and some that wouldn't. Um, and my boss was very driven in regards to the idea of, of pouring things that were really out of the box. So instead of pouring Bud, we would pour some really light lager from somewhere else in the United States, right? And so when someone would come in and ask for the Bud, the staff had to be you know, empowered enough to say, I don't have Bud, but I have this beer. Let me get it for you. And if you don't like it, then we can figure out something else. I would prefer to work in an environment where I am challenged to do that because that's my job. And we've had conversations about this privately about is part of my job as, you know, the beverage professional in the room to educate people and turn them on to products that 
are new. And I think that I do have some sort of responsibility or I'm, I'm available to do that. So I'd rather work in a place where I do that instead of just doing the thing that maybe is easier, sure. right? And just throwing them a Guinness or throwing them the bud. It's like, you're here, right? I'm going to provide you an experience. Let me turn you on to something new. And if you don't like it, then I don't know. We'll talk after that. Tell me what you didn't like about it. And maybe even after that interaction, right, you've learned a little bit more about, huh, this is why I like bud or this is why I didn't like this. I Conceptually, I totally agree with you. And right. I think there are plenty of people on which to expend that kind of effort, but I don't think Prisoner, Rombauer, Budweiser are the people to do that with. I think there, there's tons of times, tons of opportunities to do that. I love the culture of that. What I'm saying is there are a few selections that are right up against the wall of people are, are just so dead set that that's what they want. And they're going to be they're going to start with a tack that I'm not going to like this because it's not my brand, that I'm not, those are not the, the hills that I want to die on. Right. Well, I mean, I think you're talking about a very specific kind of person and really play out the scenario, right? This, this bud, I assume, let's just assume it's a gentleman, right? This bud guy comes into my restaurant. He asks for it. I don't have it, but I offer him a beer that's comparable. What are the chances that you think this guy's just going to walk out? They're really low. I I, I I think so, right? Um, so it's almost like I'm kind of forcing people to be a little bit uncomfortable, mm -hmm. right? Maybe with the selections, but I'm here. I'm being paid to guide you through what I have crafted and selected on my list. I have a question to you interject, I mean? if I may. What if, what if yeah. the beer you pour for him, comparable to Bud, he tries and doesn't like? And then you don't have another option for him because he just wants Bud. I, 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 I've worked in a restaurant and I actually took over a restaurant where we carried only like small batch spirits. So everyone would come in, they're like, I just want a Grey Goose Martini. And then I, every one of my servers had to say, oh, we don't, we don't actually carry Grey Goose. Let me tell you about this other vodka that you've never heard of. And it became, it became ridiculous because we were like doing vodka samples and it's like vodka doesn't taste like anything what's going on why are why is i just decided when i took over this is not the hill i'm gonna die on i'm buying gray goose and whenever someone says i want a goose martini you say do you want it up or on the rocks you know it's it's in some way it just bogs down service depending on what it is if that makes sense and right a hundred percent so yeah granted i'm not going to carry Budweiser, but necessarily. I mean, depends what restaurant I'm working at at the time. Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on the environment. I think spirits. That's a that's a really good point, and maybe it's just again, it's kind of going back to the root of why the yellow label thing bothers me. Is sometimes uneducated consumers get very attached to brands yeah. and the identity of brands, right? Um, and they just can't see anything else. And again, I think part of my job is to show them something else. And I think you have a more difficult time exposing people to new things when you offer them something that's very comfortable. So if they come in and they want yellow label, but I don't have yellow label, right? They're still probably gonna want sparkling. This is my time to, you know, promote this grower champagne that I really love, Right. you know? Or this California sparkling house that I really right. love. You know what I mean? Totally. Number five. <laughs> we like can't get <laughs> through my list. That, that means that they're <laughs> great pet peeves. It's something that kind of Troy talked about, which um, is the overimportance of like, let's say a specific category. So for me, the overimportance of Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon really Figured. bugs me. Right. And it's kind of it's like when you've got 10 different Napa Valley cabs, sure, I could sit down and I could probably talk to you about the differences between them or, the you know, the differences in terroir or, you know, the slight aromatic differences, whatever. But at the end of the day, right, if we're talking just hard line flavor profile wise, these are all the same. These are all the same. I mean, especially when they're all really young and, and stuff like that. Um, mm -hmm. 
it, it, it kind of is playing off the Veuve Clicquot point, which is people get so attached to the identity of a Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon that before they even go into the restaurant, they know they're going to order that because they know that it's safe. They know that it tastes like fruit and cinnamon and baking spices and sugar. And, and sugar. And they've got these blinders on, like on a, on a racehorse. Do racehorses have blinders or is those like no, those carriage horses? <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> Than like cow blinders. <laughs> I was waiting for the cranberry <laughs> pun. Oh, uh, there it is. You're kind of softballing. You're making it easy for them to stay drinking what they usually are. I mean, I I love Napa Cab. There are some Napa Cabs that I think are gorgeous and beautiful and age worthy and amazing. Obviously, I do. But when your whole list is consisted of them, you're not pushing people. To try you know, I realize new. that Laura has a pet peeve of branding, whether it's a region or a specific product. I do have a problem <laughs> going back into the whole Bright Sellers thing where your people, especially uneducated wine consumers or beverage consumers just in general, right? And again, we're speaking specifically in America because that's what we, where we are. Um, I know that we have a listener in South Korea. So that's <laughs> oh, that's cool. awesome. Uh, <laughs> Everything we're talking about probably does not relate to your markets. People just cling on to one thing. And Troy said something that was so beautiful in the first podcast. Uh, he'll be at a table and someone will say, well, I don't like Zinfandel. It's like, no, you just don't like bad Zinfandel. And I think when people cling to these brands, that's kind of where that becomes perpetuated. So with that, moving on. <laughs> I wanted to pose another question to all of you, which is, can a wine list be exciting without being challenging? And... If that's possible, how do you accomplish that? I'll start because I wrote something out about this. So uh, can it be exciting without being challenging? Is challenging, just clarify, is challenging kind of a negative connotation here? I I would say so, right? I think you could take challenging as also being intimidating. So that's the way I inferred it when I answered this. And I think if you offer someone a list that has equal parts safety of known regions and the uh, uncertainty of lesser known producers, I think you can make a wine list exciting without it being intimidating. So for example, you have to have a Sonoma Coast Pinot Noir. So why not have Ceratos instead of Sea Smoke? You have to have uh, Willamette Valley can you have Walter Scott instead of Domaine Serene? Can you have Raffinelli Cabernet instead of Silver Oak? Can you have Michelle Monnier instead of Joseph Drouin? I think if you frame people up and say, these are all regions and styles that you recognize, but I'm going to give you different producers and it's not intimidating to everyone because you're one of the things that I feel like people want to do when they want to make a list is they want to have fringe varietals from regions that people can't pronounce and they're calling that you know, an interesting list. And I think that just becomes intimidating. I think to tie it back to food for Laura, like if you were to say, you know, tonight's special is uh, broccoli root, is that exciting because it's food never heard of? Or is it just a lame attempt to try to have something that nobody else has? Beautiful. Was wow. literally beautiful. And and echoes what I wrote down in more eloquently than I could have imagined. That's like I think spot on. It's having it gorgeous. Yeah, I I think you just nailed it. That's exactly how I feel about it. I mean, you're just representing high quality, maybe smaller production from well known regions that are also typical of a region. So you're you know you're if I sat down in front of that wine program, I'd be beyond stoked because it would seem that there's only 15 options to choose from but they're all great options. Yeah. Yeah. Adding just one more uh, perspective to this, you know, I, I looked at this question through the lens of somebody who was seeking an experience. You know, a guest goes into a restaurant looking for an experience, not, not the guest that goes to In-N-Out knowing exactly what they're going to get, right? They're going to find enjoyment, but they're not exactly looking for a challenge, just seeking comfort. So I, I kind of looked at this in, in the lens of, it's somewhat in line with what Jeffers was saying. It's, if you look at buffets, it's like Golden Corral versus, you know, Caesar's Palace's buffet. Now there's a lot of reasons Caesar's Palace is better, but one of those reasons is because it's a little bit more challenging. You have more options in front of you. So I looked at the word again, challenging is diversity. So you might be familiar with a lot of the foods. You might be familiar with how they're prepared, but they could be 
uh, there could be a twist on it, right? And it could introduce you to a new type of cuisine, which could be challenging, but it also adds the fun factor to it. You know, that person who's seeking an experience doesn't really go into a restaurant and says, where's my favorite grocery store wine? That type of personality and lens right. is not seeking that type of experience. Mm -hmm. They want to be shown something. Going back to your Budweiser example, you know, the guest who's seeking experience will be open to trying the wine or the beer that tastes like Budweiser, but it might be more local. It might be, you know, something, you know, from Europe, but still have that same stylistic similarity. Wow. That was really, that was really insightful, Jeffers. Why, why do you sound surprised? <laughs> <laughs> um, moving on <laughs> to, I've got another question. So is a list of 15 bottles more or less intimidating than a 500 bottle yeah. list? I, I would say it really depends on the, the person and on what wines are available. Um, I think for most guests, 15 bottles would probably be less stressful uh, because, you know, for maybe an undereducated consumer, they just want, they just want to make a, a selection that tastes great, that suits their needs and not think about it too much. But I, I would think in terms of maybe there's a celebration, like a, a business merger, and they're looking for a really high-end wine. Um, maybe they're trying to impress someone on a, in a business meeting and they don't have an option. I could, I could see why it might be intimidating for them, or it would create a intimidating circumstance where they're trying to impress somebody and they don't have the opportunity to do so because the wine program isn't set up to, to help them do that. Yeah, that, that's a, that's a hard no for me. It's so much more intimidating to get a large list than a small list. In, in almost every really? facet. I agree, yeah. It's so much more difficult. I mean, f think about this. If you go sit down at Buffalo Wild Wings, what are you going to order? A beer. I like honey mustard. Uh, okay. wings. Oh, I mean, even, like, even simpler, right? <laughs> even simpler. You're, you're, ordering wild, you're ordering wings, right? Right. If you go to the Cheesecake Factory, what are you ordering? I don't know that they're listening. Well, yes. So, so like, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I've a California I have style read menu. Harry Potter books that are shorter than Cheesecake Factory's menu. <laughs> they, there's so many pages in that damn menu. They have advertisements like every five pages. Advertisements. They have commercials in their menu. It's like it's like reading. Okay, code. so let me challenge you. Let me challenge you a little bit, Troy. Um, <laughs> if I get a list of 500 bottles and all of the wines are kind of what we talked about with the last question where they're, they're very comfortable, right? My Rombauer Chardonnay is on there. My prisoners on there and they're sprinkled within a list of a lot of other wines, right? Or I get this 15 bottle list and it's uh, like sparkling unfiltered Baga, right? I mean, and it's just a bunch of super weird stuff. I think that's way more intimidating than a list that is most likely going to have something that I slightly recognize. Um, even though it's kind of smushed in this big encyclopedia of, of totally, wine. But what I feel like you're doing is you're taking the 1% of the small wine list instead of the 99% of the small ones. If you're going to take that 1%, then yeah, some weird abstract region is going to be a lot more difficult to navigate through. But a majority mm -hmm. of small wine lists are small, concise, and easy to read for a reason. They're usually comfortless. They're usually, I, I mean, if you're going to take extreme examples, of course, but generally speaking, you're, you're looking at Cheesecake Factory versus Buffalo Wild Wings. Right. I mean, if, if you're being fair to the wine lists that cover coast to coast, I don't think a majority of the wine lists out there look like, you know, uh, Paul Greco's, for example. Maybe this is just personal for me, but I think when I have more options, it's easier for me to make a decision than if I have constraints, like fewer options. I, I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Jeffers, what do you uh, I was going to, I was just thinking about the, the word intimidating. I think, yes, 15 versus 515 is definitely less intimidating, but it's no less frustrating to me because, so for example, uh, yeah. if I go out and I think about what I'm going to eat, and then I say, you know what would go really great with what I'm going to eat is a thin skin red. On a 15 bottle list, there's probably only one thin skin red. So 
it's that or nothing. And I don't think anybody likes to feel like it's that or nothing. Right. I think if you right. have a list in front of you, you want to feel like you made a choice. You're not going to be like, oh, the only thin skin red they have is young Nebbiolo. I guess I'm having that. It also, I think, <laughs> circling back to what Troy said, uh, you know, if somebody's out for, maybe it was Daniel, I'm sorry, maybe, uh, you know, if somebody's out for an evening and they want to have an event kind of dinner, right? they're going to order a bottle and they're going to be like, oh, what are we going to have next? Oh, the only thing that goes is another bottle of the same thing. I feel right. like that's a huge yawn. So it kind of goes into my next question about themed restaurants a little bit. Right. So how do you feel about themed restaurants having unthemed wine list? And what I mean by themed restaurants is when the food is uh, there's very strong conceptual integrity. Right. This is an Italian restaurant. This is a Spanish tapas restaurant. This is a French restaurant. How do you feel about restaurants that have that integrity with the food, but then maybe don't have that for the wine list because they're so afraid of people feeling alienated by the selection? I think, again, it. Going back to, I mean, we keep circling around this word, but diversity, right? Um, I think you can have a theme restaurant and a theme wineless where you have a majority of the wines reflecting the cuisine that you so artfully crafted and put a lot of thought into, but still have those wines that people are able to order a glass of wine or order a bottle of wine without the intimidation of, oh, I can't pronounce Baroro, you know, whatever it might be, or I didn't even know where Rebbe Roro is. So there's there's nothing wrong with a theme wine list. So why don't they have a hamburger on the menu? Why have the integrity with the food and not have the integrity with the wine? Because I think inherently wine is more intimidating because there's less exposure to it. So what, we have to baby people now? You're coming to an Italian restaurant and you're going to drink Rombauer Chardonnay? No, I don't think it's babying people. I think it's catering to people. And I think it's understanding the guest that comes into your restaurant. And I mean, look, if you live in right. if you live in Italy, what do you expect to drink? Italian wine, right? If you go to Napa Valley, what do you expect to drink? I mean, you expect to drink Napa Valley wine. Right. So I guess it kind of depends on your market, too. What if you go to Nashville? You're going to drink Budweiser. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what I'm saying is, you know, it depends on where the restaurant is located. And I think if you're going to put a themed restaurant in the middle of, you know, Wichita, Kansas, and it's strong French cuisine, well, you better put some comfort wine on. Though. Otherwise, your wine program is not really going to be too successful, no matter how successful your, your restaurant is. I think people are willing to, more, to, to be more comfortable exploring food than they are wine. Why, why are we using that as an excuse? It's, it's not an excuse. It's a, it kind of feels like one. I just want to, yeah. So I think one of the words that you used before was integrity. And I'm all about that mm -hmm. if that's what you want to do. But let me ask you. So I know a restaurant in the city where I live that is an Italian restaurant. They have a strong Italian menu. They only serve Italian wine except for port because the owner loves port, which is totally fine, but they only serve Italian wine. But then I ask you, are juicy Primitivo blends that aren't appellated, are those, do those show integrity because they're Italian or do those show that they're trying to get people to drink what they're comfortable with? Like, I feel like it's, it's that example is a little bit of a straddle, but I don't see why it's, but that it shows conceptual integrity, Doesn't right? It really? because, uh, so it, it would be, I think it does, <laughs> because you, basically what you're saying is, is it really an Italian restaurant if you just serve like really plain lasagna or spaghetti and meatballs? Well, yeah, it does. I mean, it, it's still an Italian restaurant, even though these things are easy to digest. I'd rather if you're going to an Italian restaurant, you drink, you know, Primitivo than drink, you know, something that's not Italian. Right. I mean, what grows together goes together. At least you're being exposed to something that you weren't drinking before. Is Primitivo blend something they weren't drinking before? Well, at least it's from a region that they weren't drinking it from. There's more integrity conceptually when you're pouring Italian wines at an Italian restaurant, even if those wines are are easy for American consumers to, to comprehend. Right. That's almost even better. I could see why you feel that way. I just don't understand why we're not holding things to the same standard. I mean, we love restaurants where it's really, you know, 
authentic Italian or really authentic Chinese or really authentic whatever, right? But then we don't have the same thing with the wine. Well, are, do you expect an authentic Chinese restaurant to only serve Chinese wine? Or do you expect an authentic Chinese restaurant to, to not serve wine? Oh, that's well, that's, wow, that's a good point as well. It, I think it's an interesting conversation when you're talking about themed restaurants that themed after cuisines that don't have a lot of wine culture, right? So take like Mexican cuisine, for example. I mean, there are Mexican wines, but I mean, how prevalent are they in the markets that we're in? Not very. In that case, you know, you as a SOM need to find wines that maybe aren't from that region that complement the food because you just don't have the so are you narrowing down with. the only restaurants that are allowed to be themed are french spanish italian german <laughs> if you have a themed restaurant from a country that has a strong wine culture why not have the same integrity you have the opportunity to right if i'm opening up a, a chinese restaurant right i don't have the same opportunities to pour chinese wine i would pour only Chinese wine if I had access to it and it was all palatable, but I don't. But if you have access to those things, why not? Why not continue the experience into the beverage portion of the meal? And the, ahead, well, I think Daniel. the question is, what does the experience need to be? And so if you're, if you're like super niche and you're doing really high quality Italian cuisine and you know, there's a, a price point accompanied with that and there's an expectation accompanied with that, then maybe it is conceptually uh the right move to do an all italian wine program i mean moving into balance i think maybe having primarily italian wines but then having some selections right. is probably the best option i've seen a, an italian wine program that's like feels like mostly barolo and alianico and it's like ah maybe put something else on there you know it's, it just i think selection matters mm -hmm. Yeah, if you're going to do that, why not do it across all beverages? If you're going to have, right. you know, XYZ themed restaurant, why not have, you know, all Italian beer, all Italian soda, all Italian water? If you're going to be intellectually consistent as you're arguing, you shit, you better have everything in that theme if you want to remain philosophically true to what you're saying, Laura. But again, I yeah, well, you you can do that. It is possible. I worked at a Spanish restaurant where I was pouring Estrella. Yeah. Right. I mean, that was my beer. Did I, you I mean, also I, have Budweiser? I had Spanish, you know. Well, where the restaurant was forced me to have certain corporate mandates. So yes, I did have things okay. like Bud. Right. But if I'm running my own restaurant, I'm not. So here's have the that, other part of the right because if you want Bud, here's the other part else. of the the coin that we haven't discussed when people. When a majority of people, whether you're in for an experience or whether you're in, f whether you're um, uh, not looking for a immersive experience, right? I want to go to this Italian restaurant. I just want to get my pizza, right? Or I want to go to this Italian restaurant and have some sort of tortellini ravioli that I've never had. So you have two different types of guests. Both of those guests have one thing in common. They're choosing the food first. The drinks always come second in a majority of diners. And right. so that's where I think you need to have some diversification and comfort built in to appease both crowds. Otherwise, yeah. you're not going to have a successful program. Yeah. You, you might have this, this dream. It, it could work in some markets. I'm not saying that it can't, but a majority, you can't operate that way. Otherwise, you're gonna, your whole wine list is going to be a donut. I just don't think that's true right I, I don't understand this idea if i don't have something comfortable that that person has decided okay well i'm shutting down i'm not getting any wine tonight right they're probably going to say well can somebody help me pick something cue mm -hmm. us and then we go in and we help them make that experience you might be right but i think you're going to have more if you force people to be uncomfortable right they they're going to have they need help right i mean yeah i don't know Maybe that's inhospitable. Maybe. Yeah, I feel like most people, maybe I'm wrong about this, but are not going to ask for help and they're just going to order what they're, they're comfortable with instead of going through some sort of embarrassment in front of their guests to ask for that help. What if they're not comfortable with anything? Then They have to then. I mean, they always have the option no? of not drinking, but... That's the last yeah, option, Daniel. That's a, I know, but that's a bad right. place for a restaurant to be. If someone's coming into my restaurant and 
they're not sure what they want and they're not comfortable with the selections. Maybe having the sommelier stopping by would def, I think it would definitely be of help to them. But sometimes I, I interact with guests. I can tell that they need help and I approach the table and I offer help, but they don't always want to take it because I think they're concerned there's, they're going to be pressured by me into buying a more expensive bottle than they're looking for. So I think there's a lot of pressure on the guest already. And if they don't have some level of comfortability, it's possible that you'll alienate them. I think when we get back to the idea of a theme and does the theme match, let's think of an example of something like uh, a Thai street food restaurant or you know some kind of Southeast Asian restaurant that focuses on intense flavors and spices. Doesn't it match the theme to have a bunch of great German and Austrian and like Loire wines? Yeah. Yes. And, you know, what if your restaurant, so if we all, most of us agree that that is yes. So what if your theme is like French comfort food, then isn't comfort wine more important than just French wine? Well, I would be pouring comfort driven French wines, right? Really approachable French table wines. Okay. I want you to make a list of all those that are available in our market. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I'll, I'll email you after this podcast. I wanted to talk about something that's um, happening right now, uh, which is COVID, right? Everything going on with it right now, we've all been affected by it um, in some way or another. Because of COVID, with the structure of restaurant service changing, how do you see wine lists evolving? Anyone want to take it? I want you to take it. Oh. Um, Oh, man. (laughs) All right, we're going (laughs) to... Daniel, why don't you go ahead and tell us? My the... girlfriend's gonna hear this podcast, so it's, which one? It's gonna get interesting. Oh my gosh! <laughs> you actually have a heart out right now. I guess the question, the immediate thing I think of is there's there's been a question of paper menus or iPad menus, right? And that's been a contested issue. And there's obviously a romance to the paper, but I've been at a few restaurants that have QR codes on tables and you just take a quick snap of it with your phone, then you start browsing through. And to be completely yeah. honest, I love it. There's There hasn't been a long format wine program I've interacted with in that way. Oh, you're but such a millennial. No, I, oh no, I really like, I, I I like it because- that, but I'll let you finish. There's something, it's you're on your phone, it's comfortable, you're, you use this phone all day long. I don't know, it's just, there's something more intimate about it in my, experience. I'm going to have a Troy get off my lawn kind of moment, but anything that encourages people to pull their phone out at the dinner table, I'm not here for it. So I think Daniel brings up a great point and I hate to agree with Daniel, but I'm going to anyway. I love that when you can access the wine list from your phone, and I don't necessarily mean that from the table because I also like to chase people off my lawn and don't necessarily want to read it. But if you're Usual dining companions are people that don't have the same tolerance for reading through a 500 selection list. I love to have narrowed down the wines that I'm interested in before I get to the restaurant. And I've done this tons of times. There's a restaurant in Portland that I love to go to and they don't have their wine list online. So the first thing I do is I sit down and I order some Suave Classico or something, some Italian white so that my guests have something to drink while I pour over the list for the next 45 minutes and probably miss the appetizer course. It's really interesting that you both kind of jumped to technology because I was thinking more, and this is something, again, that we've talked about privately, but uh, adding descriptors underneath wines, maybe not two sentences like the list that Daniel had uh, mentioned earlier, but we've talked about that a lot of you like when you know, under a BTG option, it'll say plum, raspberry, bold. Maybe because my interactions with tables are going to be lessened, I need to add a little bit yeah. of what my spiel would have been to the physical list. So I think I'm, I'm going to speak from a place of ignorance right now because I haven't been into a restaurant, nor have I worked in my restaurant since mid-March. Um, with that being said, a lot of restaurants... Uh, have moved to, you know, going every other table, you know, or pulling tables. So you have six foot distances. Some of them have seating capacities. Uh, Just speaking to different friends that I have in the sommelier community, 
I don't think anything's going to change drastically. I think that the time that you spend at a table isn't really going to change either. Your interaction with the table is still the same. The length of time that you're at a table is roughly still the same. Mm. So I don't really see this wine list or interaction with guests changing drastically. I think the occupancy in a restaurant is what's going to change. So tying in Laura's hatred of cell phones at the table to this conversation, I would say boiling down what you would say about a wine to a few words cheapens what you do. Because I don't think you're going to say those same words to every guest based on the things that they might ask, based on the experience that you have with them. So I think that seriously cheapens your role. And the way that I'm tying that into Laura's cell phone comment is I would rather FaceTime a guest from within my restaurant than to cheapen my wine descriptions down to a few words if I have to choose one or the other because of current health situation. Yeah. So that's very interesting. I kind of like how you're describing that is, is kind of cheapening how you would describe the wines. Do you think wine lists that are doing that now with the descriptors underneath uh, the wines? The reason that I will say no is because I think that's the only thing they're going to give you ever. So it's not like they're giving you plums because you're asking about what the fruit characteristic is, or they're giving you an experience because, you know, for example, if I have a guest, if it's a guest that I know, or if it's a guest that I don't know, I'm going to try to read something about what they want to know about the wine. Do they want to know what food it pairs with? Do they want to know what the fruit characteristic is? Do they want to know something about the producer in the region because they're not familiar with it? I don't think you can distill all those different things down into something that you can write below a list. I would much rather be interactive with what the guest needs. But that being said, right. I think when people write tastes like plums with a hint of tobacco, it's because they don't have anything else to offer. Right. I think, and well, there's also um, in the sales context, enthusiasm is what generally sells a wine. And when it's just text on a page, you don't, you don't feel the enthusiasm. And like, you don't, you also don't get Maybe this is wrong of me, but I, I I have a pretty basic palate. I love Napa Cab, right? And I and I and most people who come to my restaurant who are looking at Napa Cab, I, I can tell you which ones they're gonna like because they're very likely the ones that I like. It gives you an opportunity to connect to a guest and when they see your enthusiasm, they will more likely buy the wine you're spilling than not. And I, I feel like if you just started writing fruit descriptors under the bottles, and I have three pages of Napa, imagine what that would look like. It would, you know, be core of red fruit, powerful tannins. They would be the same thing under every single wine. And how would you differentiate at that point? Right. Yeah. Well, I think that that's going to do it on our conversation about wine list. There were some really amazing points in there from everyone and it's definitely going to influence me moving forward when I get to the point where I'm writing my own list or if I'm inheriting another list. It's a really fun discussion. I uh, appreciate you us. Uh, inviting us on. Join us next time where we're going to be talking about Vivino and everything surrounding it. That's going to be it. All right. Cut. If you need a lift, who's the kid in the drop? Who else will slip? Living that life, some consider a myth. Rock from South Street to one, two, fifth. Women used to tease me, give it to me now, nice and easy. Since I moved up like Georgia. How do you make your coffee? Like, do you have a Keurig or is it like a. Is, is that a, a Jeffers question? I, oh, I just use. I have a little. It's an everyone question if you want it to be. Various ways. <laughs> I mean, I have a pour over, but. And it, it is clearly better but uh i use my little i have a little small mr coffee machine i use a lot it's just so convenient it's a treat <laughs> like grapefruit juice <laughs> <laughs>